Hello and welcome back to the Money Markets and Macro Podcast. Brought to you by Atticus Capital, I'm your host, Liam Hennessy. This is episode 8 of the MMM Podcast. Now, today we're going to be discussing something a little interesting. and I assume many people have heard about the protests in China. We'll be getting into that a little bit today. In the second half of the podcast, I want to start out here as usual with some of the performance in the markets. Um, we'll, we'll end on the market segment with oil because there's some interesting stuff, as we talked about in the last podcast, as it relates to oil futures. And there's a little bit here that I want us to consider. And if you remember the discussion with backwardation and contango, we'll get back into that a little bit today. It seems like those problems are not subsiding. So starting out here, looking at natural gas, we're seeing some fairly nice moves in natural gas. We saw a nice uh, jump and a gap last week, a gap up of about 3.44%. Natural gas futures are closed at uh, $7.44. So it looks like we are continuing to rise. We did mention in a previous podcast, a consolidation zone and then a breakout from that consolidation. So it seems like that's going to be the trend. We do have some upper limits at around seven and a half dollars up until eight and a half dollars. We'll see if that continues or whether or not that wants to reverse. We've got, as I mentioned in the last podcast in our special report for Thanksgiving, the uh, conditions and the state of the European economy and some of what's happening there, some of the demand dynamics and supply dynamics that can affect prices in especially these types of commodities such as crude oil, raw material goods, iron ore, so on and so forth, and natural gas. Next, let's take a quick look at some of the indexes. We've got the Russell here, still trading within its channel range, trading at 1857. Not much has happened over the past week. We're essentially flat going back to November uh, 14th. Not much has changed. So we'll see if this continues. We've hit a little bit of resistance here around 1885 on the Russell Small Cap Index. So we'll see if it continues to rally in that direction or if it wants to take a reversal trade and trade a little lower. Same type of ordeal here for the NASDAQ index, the NASDAQ composite index. Not much, again, has changed. We are flat from, this is November 14th, we're at the same level at 11,226.36. Again, trading at some resistance. We'll see if this continues. There is a gap fill range at around 10,750. We'll see if it wants to get back down there and fill that gap. But it's a very, very minor and small gap, only about maybe a 30 basis or 30 points. So that's not too significant. We'll see if it fills. We'll see where it trades going on. NASDAQ is still trading very, very weak relative to the other indexes, such as the Dow Jones. We're looking at the Dow Jones here trading at 34,347, trading right at the supply range for uh, Tuesday, 16th, October. August of 2022. That's where the last time we got up to this level, we've got a decent amount of trading volume above 34,500. So very interesting to see whether or not it trades continuously into that range. We are now only down from the very all-time highs to here. We're only down 7%. 
So as we mentioned in the last podcast, I believe we were down 8% or 8.3% in the last show that we covered. The markets were only down 7%, so the Dow Jones is continuing to prove that value industrial energy names are the names to be in. If you want to weather a lot of this recession problems and the recession storm, we've got some of the names up here today. I don't know if we'll have time to cover all of them because we do have a big segment for part two, but I do have names quickly of Apple, United Health Group, Boeing, JP Morgan, Walmart, CVX. They're all doing remarkably well. Apple's a little worse than the rest. United Health Group is trading relatively near its all time highs. Boeing, eh, still not doing well, still has not recovered its 2020 losses is trading at 178 right at the top of a trend line, a negative trend line range. There is a slight wedge pattern or pennant pattern uh, forming on the daily chart for Boeing. It's not too stable. It's not the best type of wedge that we've ever seen. So we'll see if it trades above this level. There's possibility it can get back to that 200 range, but that's Boeing. JP Morgan trading very strong, had a very strong earnings at the start of October. Uh, traded at $100 at the low point on the 12th and 13th of October, and now is trading at 136.74. We have room up to 142 in JP Morgan. Walmart, same type of ordeal here, is trading near its top, the top of the uh, all-time high range at $153 a share. The all-time high is at $160, right around that level. So, very strong chart on the daily. We'll see if Walmart continues this strength and momentum. We did get some good earnings in the last report. We did see a nice gap up on the 15th of November. So we'll see if uh, Walmart continues. Also, Walmart does con uh, is considered a good recession era investment just because it, it tailors towards that low income, cheap, cheap goods that typically sees a higher volume purchase during times of economic distress where people's individual discretionary income is lower. So that's always an interesting element to consider when you're investing in hard times. CVX trading right near its all-time highs at 183.7. The all-time highs are right around 190. It looks like here 189.53 seems to be roughly the all-time high. So we're trading, you know, right about let me make sure I got my math correct here, right around 3% below its all-time highs. Energy, again, as we've mentioned before, a very strong sector over the past few months, past couple of years, really. United Health Group, again, trading near the top of the range. These are all, by the way, all of these stocks are Dow Jones Industrial stocks. They're all in that index. And this gives credence to the reason why the Dow Jones is performing so remarkably well during this time period. You know, stable, value, big blue chip stocks are performing very, very well. So that's the breakdown for the Dow Jones. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about specific investments, check out Atticus Capital. We do have a, a consortium of portfolios where you are able to invest in these types of securities. Uh, I myself am not a licensed financial advisor and I cannot give recommendations, but we do have members on our team who are and who can. Now, moving over to the Standard & Poor's Index, trading much like the Russell 2000 Index, trading very strongly at 4,026. We've got some room up to 4,125 right around that level. That's where we consider there to be some supply resistance. So we've got 
roughly from where we are now to where that level is about two and a half percent to get to that range we did see a little pullback on the 14th of november down to around 30 or 39.15 and we are seeing some resumption trade but we're at the same levels as we were on the 14th of november 2022 we'll see if this continues to rally it's a very a fairly strong trend all the way back from the uh, early october lows so we'll see if this continues or whether or not the market reverses taking a look at gold has not gone anywhere it's trading exactly where it was back on the 10th of november 2022 so if gold wants to continue its rally it'll continue to do so it looks relatively strong on the last three daily candles so we'll see if this continues dollar is continuing its weakness we did see a short reversal rally after the low set on the 15th of november we mentioned in one of the previous podcasts the resumption trade in the dollar was relatively strong now we've seen that reversed trading right back down at 106.062 so there is some relative weakness in the dollar we'll see if this continues or whether or not it wants to trade flat for the next few weeks or so on and so forth until we get some type of catalyst to help the dollar move in a specific direction not sure where that direction is but given the current trend the recent trend going back to the 27th of september it's relatively negative we would be un uh let's see unsurprised if the dollar fell continuously maybe back down to 104 you could get all the way back down to 101 maybe around that 100 range so there is some room to go in the dollar as we see it now lastly i want to cover this before we get to part two oil oil is trading at 76.28 we did mention that there was the low set on the 27th of september there was a relatively decent rally in the daily chart we're seeing a double top formation occurring between the 23rd and the 20 and the 7th of november so the 23rd of october and the 7th of november there is a double top at 93.50 and now we're trading right back at the lows we did set new lows relatively new lows obviously this is between right around you know january of 2022 to now that's our relative time frame we did get back all the way down to 75.40 and now we're trading down into that we do have the oil price caps likely going to be one of the elements that are structuring this lower trade in oil over the short to medium term it'd be interesting to see what the russian response is to this how this affects supply and demand globally uh, depending on what russia decides to do with its oil we'll get a better picture as the months continue to roll on one of the elements that we mentioned in one of the previous podcasts was the oil futures curve now the oil futures curves gives you gives you an idea as we discussed between two uh, future curve theories we have contango and backwardation where backwardation is the futures contract price is lower at the longer end of the curve than the shorter end of the curve that incentivizes utility and use it incentivizes producers to put oil on the market at the spot market because that's where you get that's where you're going to get the most expensive and the most profitable return whereas when contango occurs it incentivizes storage because the front month contracts are trading at a lower price than the latter month contracts so what we're seeing now 
we mentioned there was a very small contango, you know, we could call it an inversion, a very small contango price uh, included in the, I believe it was the January and February contracts. What we're seeing now is this is continuing. So now we were in contango between the January and February contracts. Now we're in contango between the January and April contracts where the January contracts are trading at 76.55. February is trading at 76.69. March is trading at 76.77. April is trading at 76.75. And then we do get back into backwardation with the May contracts trading at 76.51 by only four points or less than four point zero four points. So this is likely going to give us more information on the condition of the oil market. We do have the oil price cap. I'm assuming a lot of that has to do uh, with the reason these future contracts are in contango by such a large margin. But again, it comes back to the discussion. This shouldn't be happening. We're being told we have a fuel shortage fuel crisis, diesel crisis, we need oil on the market. We, you know, all of the elements that we've been hearing about for the last few months, those arguments are completely evaporated as a result of the oil futures market, the actual market for oil, incentivizing storage to March, right? March is the most expensive contract listed. Therefore, there is likely going to be a incentive to store and take out the March contracts for store or for utility in March of 2023. That's only about three months from where we are today. So with that said, what I wanted to do today was get into China. So I'm assuming many people have heard the recent protests. Now, I didn't really know exactly what was going on with the protests. I saw some Twitter videos of you know, a mass amount of people out in the streets calling for the Communist Party. Obviously, I don't speak Chinese. I don't know Mandarin. So I had to take the translation uh, at face value. Again, I always have questions when there's things coming out, media, videos, images coming out of China. You never know what kind of firewall they go through, what type of censorship, what type of editing, all of these videos and text and images go through when they... Uh, you know, are exported from the Chinese uh, media or individuals in China. But I've got a couple of articles up here that I want to read with you guys as we try to understand what's going on with China. Now, there's a few elements that we're going to discuss, but let's first start out with the protests. I've got two articles here from uh, this is the Epoch Times, the Epic Times. Uh, in their Chinese, I believe this is their Chinese uh, mainland news. So all of this was in Chinese. I had to obviously translate it back into English. So here's the first article. It says here, Xi Jinping's alma mater, Xi Gua. Oh, by the way, please excuse me if I absolutely butcher names of locations and people. It's very difficult. Chinese. The Chinese language is a very difficult language. It says, uh, Tsinghua, I believe it's how it's pronounced, university is now protesting against the tide of students shouting for democracy. Now, we've seen some of these university protests throughout the past few months. Uh, these aren't new, but let's go into it. 
This is an article posted on the 27th of November. That's today. It says here, a fire broke out in Ur... Urumqui? Urumqui? Oh my goodness. See, we're already starting out very poorly. <laughs> Urumqui. Let's just call it Urumqui. Uh, in Xinjiang, which has been locked down for several months. On this evening of November 24th, and it is suspected that serious casualties were caused by the lockdown. The resulting dissatisfaction quickly spread throughout the country. And on the 26th and 27th, people in many places across the country continued to take to the streets to protest the CCP's harsh zero epidemic prevention policy, including Tsihuang uh, University and other universities also protested. The news was blocked on Weibo, 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 in the mainland, but some Nietzsens, I'm not sure, I'm assuming that citizens, used uh, Duyin to broadcast live so that the relevant videos were successfully transmitted overseas. Xi Jinping's alma mater, Sihuang University, or Tsinghua University in Beijing, also had hundreds of students rally to protest on the 27th, shouting the slogan of, quote, democracy and rule of law, freedom of expression. Videos posted on social media, Twitter showed hundreds, if not thousands, of Beijing uh, King University, that's Q-I-N-G University students, gathered in front of schools uh, Bohinia Garden. Reuters reported that among the crowds gathered on the campus of uh, Tsinghua University to sing the Chinese national anthem, university students could also be seen holding blank sheets of paper in protest. In one video, students hold up a blank sheet of paper and sing in unison, quote, rise up, people who don't want to be slaves. A girl shouted that she would no longer curry favor with the CCP powers, drawing applause from the students. At one point, the students chanted, quote, democracy, rule of law, freedom of expression, and sang the Internationale. I'm not sure what that is. I'm assuming that might be some type of cultural or uh, song of, of the Chinese people. So it says here some Nietzscheans, Nietzscheans, maybe that's a, a term for citizens or students, I'm not too sure, labeled this as a, quote, white paper revolution. Very interesting. And this protest method also appeared at the protest sites of Nanjing University of Communication and Shanghai Middle Urumqi Road. It is understood that the white paper represents the anger of not being able to express free speech. And the meaning of, quote, you delete it, everyone knows what was written. Since the outbreak of COVID-19, the CCP has adopt, adopted a dynamic zeroing policy, and university campuses have been the most tightly controlled places for access. Many students have been living in dormitories for months during the lockdown. A list circulated on the 27th showed that as of that evening, students in at least 51 colleges and universities across the country were launching various forms of protest against the CCP's zero COVID policy. So this goes on here. It doesn't seem like there's too much. There's a lot of videos. Uh, I obviously can't show them. This is a podcast. You guys won't be able to see exactly what's happening, but we can go through the rest of this article here. It says here, another video shows that on the evening of the 26th, students from Sichuan uh, Foreign Chinese University protested and gathered together to sing the Internationale. I'm assuming this is going to be their, uh, their national anthem. 
There is also a video showing that college students at uh, Nanjing University of Communications held up blank papers in the evening of the 26th to protest the CCP's zero clearance, mourning the victims in Xinjiang, and shouting slogans such as long live the people, rest in peace for the deceased. The Twitter account, Teacher Lee is not your teacher, interesting, which has recently frequently helped China issue protest uh, scene videos, continued to publish videos submitted by domestic citizens overseas on the 27th. Uh, it says Nietzscheans, I'm just going to say citizens, I'm assuming that might be just a communication and translation error. Following the release of videos involving Shanghai people demanding the resignation of the Communist Party and Xi Jinping on the 26th, the video shows the places of popular protest over many parts of the country from universities and campuses to streets, subway stations, shopping malls, etc. Some held up blank sheets of paper in protest, others shouted various slogans including, again, democracy and rule of law, freedom of expression, another one, don't be a slave and be a citizen, another one here, don't be, don't be free. Uh, if you're not free, you would rather die, and so on among them, quote, do not be a slave and be a citizen. Do not uh, nucleic acid. I'm assuming that is the, the testing regime that they've been under, the nucleic acid tests, and be free. It was content. It was the content of a banner hung by protesters at the Tong uh, Bridge in Beijing before the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China. Uh, we do have some interesting information on that, but... The rest of this article just has multiple videos of protests all over China. So there's one last little element here. It says Professor Feng uh, Choying Chung Yi of the University of Technology, Sydney in Australia, told the Epic Times on the 27th that now the people not only speak out for their own rights and interests, nor just sporadic protests, there had been a turn. The street movements against the Communist Party had finally begun, and this movement will produce a group of heroes of the times who will change China, and China is uh, ushering in a dawn of constitutional transformation. That's a very interesting perspective. Now, this reminds me a lot of what happened in Hong Kong, and we clearly see that uh, how that panned out and how that ended, but again, that was Hong Kong, and now we're seeing it in China, in mainland China, in Beijing, big cities. So maybe this is a, a, a new transition for China, but we'll discuss a little bit more of what's going on, because this, this article says a lot of this came from the zero COVID policies in China, which has essentially been rolling lockdowns for three years. I mean, I can't even imagine the types of psychological torture that, that, that ensues and that endures on the Chinese people. And my heart goes out to anybody who suffers onto that type of uh, oppressive uh, objective by, by a certain government. But again, we'll discuss a little bit about what's going on with those lockdowns, maybe why those lockdowns have continued on for about three years. And uh, we'll discuss a little bit of, of maybe some uh, theorizing because they're not telling you exactly what's going on, but we'll get into that. Another article here I wanted to go through. Uh, I'm wondering if this is the same. So this was a article written on the, well, it says 28th. So I'm assuming this is from individuals in either China or on the, uh, other side of the planet from from myself or obviously there's 24 hours in advance so it seems like there may be some it says there's updated here on the 28th at 1 30 in the morning um, so this is live update the, the article here says china's protests continue it says an expert says the people are right to uh, are right to the root of the problem so this one is a article from the epic times again reported by uh zhang ting's comprehensive report 
anti-blockade and anti-authoritarian protests continued to rise in China, Shanghai protesters boldly shouted, quote, Communist Party down, Xi Jinping down, shocking the world. Gordon G. Chang, a China expert, said the protests were different from the June 4th in that Chinese people were now addressing the root of the problem, which was that the CCP rule is destroying China. On Sunday, November 27th, and this goes into the student protests that we just covered, uh, says here, Zhang Jidun, Jidun, a China expert, tweeted, quote, unlike in 1989, Chinese people this time go straight to the root of the problem, which is that the CCP rule is destroying China. Mr. Zhang also attached the tweet of a video of Shanghai protesters that night posted by Eva Ramello, a China correspondent for the Dutch daily newspaper True. Trau. On Saturday night, people can be clearly heard shouting Communist Party down, Xi Jinping down. Uh, okay, fighting for freedom, socialism, destroying countries, uh, Chinese popular protests, and uh, it says 89-64, I wonder if that's 1964. Uh, says the protest sites are scattered and making it more difficult for the CCP to deal with, but the negative side of the people is that CCP's surveillance system is everywhere, right? Also, the protesters are geographically dispersed, and in 1989, they could kill and crush people gathered in Tiananmen Square, so um, they're, they're drawing connections to Tiananmen Square, obviously the, the massacre that occurred there um, back in 89. So, there's just a lot of... Uh, different quotes from people it seems like on twitter and other places here um i'm just trying to see if there's anything else we can glean from this so okay so this describes the the fire so this is what i wanted to get into it didn't really have it all too well in the last in the last uh, article here but here's essentially uh, apparently what really sparked a lot of these protests so it says here, the CCP's zero COVID policy, it says extreme zero policy, continues to cause tragedies. On March 7th, 2020, a Jinja hotel in Quanzhou, Fujian province, which was used to isolate close contacts, collapsed, eventually killing 29 people. In the early morning of September 18th, 2022, a bus transporting COVID-19 quarantine people in uh, Guizhou overturned, resulting in 27 deaths. In the middle of this month, the news that a four-month-old baby in Zhenzhou died due to unrelated illness once again ignited public anger against the CCP's excessive epidemic prevention. On November 24th, a fire broke out in a high-rise residential building in Urumqi, Xinjiang, killing 10 people and injuring 9 others. The actual number may be larger. Local people believe that the CCP authorities' zero policy and epidemic lockdown measures have, in, have hindered fire rescue and prevented trapped people from escaping in time. The deadly fire angered ordinary Chinese struggling with the blockade. Protesters then blossomed, or protests then blossomed. Throughout the weekend, protests erupted in Beijing, Shanghai, Nanjing, and Chongqing by students on the street or universities, resisting the blockade, demanding freedom, and no nucleic acid, and even pointing the finger at the CCP rulers. Uh, it says Yan Zong Huang. A senior fellow on global health at the Council of, Foreign Relations, Council of Foreign Relations said a lot of people here are reaching a tipping point. It says, if the government mishandles, this heightened level of instability could quickly turn into the worst political crisis since Tiananmen. So, 
he goes on and describes some more of the videos. It seems like a lot of these protests are, are coming out of anxiety, social anxiety, social angst, because the people have been under such strict measures for such a long period of time. I couldn't even imagine, you know, you know, think to yourself, you know, a lot of my, a lot of the audience here, we're all Westerners, right? We're, we're, you know, from, uh, I was looking at some of where we're all from, you know, there's Italy, there's Ireland, America, UK, we're all Westerners. I mean, it's, it's very hard for us to imagine exactly what it is living in China as a normal Chinese citizen under such a government and such a oppressive government at that. You know, we all have our own problems in our own countries. We have our own problems with our own governments. No, you know, obviously no government's altruistic as we can clearly see, you know, we go back in history and that's a pretty common theme that altruism is a very rare trait, especially among individuals who, you know, lack consequences for actions. But again, that's, it's, there's nothing that, that can compare it to, to the, 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 just the, the size and the scope of the Chinese government's control and, and surveillance state. So it's hard for at least myself to get an idea of what really it is to be an individual living in China. And, and these protests, be it, you know, taking them at face value that they're natural in, in origin, and I get the feeling that they absolutely are, that, that people are absolutely fed up with, with what's going on. And some of the elements that I wanted to discuss today outside of simply the, the the lockdown policies is some of the data that we're getting from China specifically, because when you look at these events of immense social volatility, a lot of that has to do, obviously it's sparked absolutely by a great deal with the lockdown policies, but that's not the only thing that's occurring in China. When we're looking at the data, and I've got a ton of data up here, we may not even be able to get through all of it without making this an hour-long podcast, but some of what we're seeing in China gives a little bit more information and context to why the people are at this tipping point level. Now, I wanted to start out here with a phrase used by Xi Jinping in the 19th and 20th Party Congress. I've got the transcript of the 20th Congress uh, 20th party Congress here. And there are some elements to it that I want us to take into account. And before we get into this, refresh your memories back to the Evergrande story, right? We all remember this big real estate giant in China that, that you know, that they're over leveraged and the economy was taking a turn and they were hit first and the hardest and the Chinese communist party didn't go in and immediately save them. And then there's there was some speculation on why, but I think there's there's a good reason. And once we get an idea of what's going on in China, what's in, going on in the mind of Xi Jinping, obviously I'm not a, a, a what do they call him? Uh, I can't read people's minds. Uh, I don't have telepathy or any of that, but you know we can listen and we can read what what Xi Jinping is saying, and we can understand a little bit of the history in China. And one of the terms that we see fairly often is the term of common prosperity. And there's a couple of quotes here from the 20th party Congress that I've had, that I have highlighted. It says here, the modernization of common prosperity for all. And these are from Xi, of course, 
uh, quotes, achieving common prosperity is a defining feature of socialism with the uh, Chinese characteristics and involves a long historical process. The immutable goal of our modernization drive is to meet people's aspirations for a better life. We will endeavor to maintain and promote social fairness and justice, bringing prosperity to all and prevent polarization. And he mentions uh, the common prosperity a couple of times. He mentions it again here, dis discussing the rule of law through society you know obviously it's, it's hard to tell china really has a system of rule of law or rule by law as a, a, an element that uh, kyle bass makes note of quite a bit he's he's quite a china hawk he says you know chinese operate on a rule by law whereas western nations such as the united states rule under a system of rule uh, of law so Improving system of income distribution. Again, she is saying here, the system of income distribution is the foundational system for promoting common prosperity. We will keep distribution according to work as the mainstay with multiple forms of distribution existing alongside it. And we will build an institutional framework under which primary, secondary, and tertiary distributions are well-coordinated and mutually complementary. We will work to raise the share of personal income and the distribution of national income and give more weight to worker renumerate renumerations in primary distribution. So essentially what I'm trying to get at with this common prosperity framework is it has a lot to do with the governing philosophy of the ruling class in China. Now there's two, from what I can tell, there's two big elements in the ruling class in China. There are the old school technocrats and there are the princelings. Xi Jinping being a princeling. And if you remember the video from the 20th Party Congress where Hu Jintao was brought out on camera, he was kind of dragged out. He's sort of that staple. He's that pillar of uh, the old Chinese technocrats who wanted to, you know, uh, capitalize, you know, maintain a, a form of, of capitalism to continue to grow the, the Chinese economy in that way, obviously with the Chinese characteristics and try to you know emulate some of the economic structure of the west while obviously trying to maintain their their cultural and political uh heritage and history and the from what i can tell again you know i'm no historian on the chinese but what i can tell there's there's a a, a fractious relationship between the old technocrats of the older generations the previous presidents and the pre previous leaders of china and sort of this younger-ish, you could say younger-ish, uh, generation or this different generation of princelings in China who wanted or who want to, you know, remove the old capitalistic sentiment of the Chinese, the old Chinese technocratic order and bring back the Chinese cultural socialism and return China to this, you know, less western influenced capitalistic society and bring it back to its socialist and communistic roots uh, where it, it it focuses much more on on cultural and ethnic or ethnic sort of uh, coercion coercion and, and cohesion i guess you could say is a better word so there's there's that bifurcation there and again as always when we're discussing this topic i'm again no expert don't take you know my don't don't think of me as some sort of, you know, higher power of understanding the Chinese is just information that I'm trying to parse together from uh, multiple different sources of, of listening to individuals who are, you know, actual historians on the Chinese. But in, when we're discussing this common prosperity element of it, 
we have to be able to look at that thinking of that framework towards the Chinese economy and what's happening in China at the moment. So what we can tell from the data that we're getting from China is that the Chinese people, let me see if I can find the right article here. It is, I believe, here, right. The Chinese economy is built very different than Western economies, like economies in the United States. You know, in the U.S., most of the household income, household savings are in financialized financial assets. You know, fixed income, 401ks, you have, you know, money market funds, stocks, bonds, derivatives, uh, mutual funds, ETFs. A lot of household wealth is held up in these types of diversified, securitized assets. Now, in China, it's a lot different, where a lot of their speculative investment is in real estate. They have an article here from China Banking News. It says household average asset in Beijing and Shanghai exceed 1 million US dollars, home ownership at 96%, where in the US it's averaged at about 60%, 65%. So let me find the element here. So it says real assets comprise the mainstay of urban household assets, nearly 70%, while financial assets comprise a share of about 20%. So to understand what happens in China and, and the way the Chinese people, and this may be a cultural thing, but there's also, you know, the, the Chinese people invest a lot more in real estate than Americans or other Western countries do. And there's a couple of elements for the reason that, you know, for that reason. First is, I think most importantly, access to financial instruments, right? They, you know, a, a normal individual Chinese doesn't have the same freedom, you could say, to invest in a broad, diversified basket of securities the way that we can in the United States, right? They don't have the avail availability to open up a brokerage account, open up, you know, multiple banking accounts, multiple brokerage accounts, invest in foreign securities, foreign assets, and invest in this huge consortium of, of assets in, you know, not only China or vice versa for us in the U.S. You know, most of their availability of investing is within real estate. And that's why most of the Chinese, you know, investment economy is based around real estate. So, and that's why Evergrande was such a big deal because a lot of Chinese had a lot of money invested in that and they don't have a lot in securities and, uh, you know, marketable securities, you could say. So, you know, we have to keep that in mind. And again, there's probably some cultural elements to the reason that the Chinese invest so much in real estate, but this has to resonate back to the point of common prosperity where Xi Jinping's economic theory, as it seems over the actions since he's taken over, has been more along the lines of housing isn't the method by which you speculate in the economy. Housing is for living, right? And I think that's the sort of thing you can see come across as the Chinese didn't you know, attempt to bail out the Evergrande and some of the other elements that we're seeing in China, such as uh, what was the, I have another one up here. Uh, there was real estate loans. So the Chinese are cutting reserve requirements. And that's something else we can discuss. But there was, oh man, I have so much, uh, so many tabs open here. Uh, we have, you know, a, a declining housing market in China. And it seems a little bit intentional. 
but obviously not all intentional. So this is sort of what we have to consider when we're looking at China as a whole, especially going back to the protests. There's a change from the CCP, from the Chinese government. They're essentially rejiggering the Chinese economy away from this real estate focused investment system that all the Chinese people are really involved in towards a more common prosperity where you invest in your home, you buy your home because you want to live there. And you take your securities and you diversify them among different financial assets and so on and so forth. Again, that comes with a little bit of a, you know, if it's a little iffy because it depends on and then requires the Chinese to open up uh, their financial accounting, financial system for foreign and domestic investors. So some of the other elements here, and, and the reason I want to go through some of this data is because we have to understand that the social volatility with these protests is not solely contributed to the lockdown policies. You know, economic instability results in social instability. When people are losing money, they have no money, they can't afford to buy necessary goods, they get anxious and that creates social anxiety. And then if you add on top of that lockdown policies, you know, an economic downturn is, is, is volatile enough for society. But if you add down lockdowns where you can't not only you can't afford the necessary goods that you need and food, shelter, water, so on and so forth. But now you're, you know, you're stuck in your home and you're not even allowed to leave to get the things that you're barely available or you barely can afford. I mean, that's, that's just layering on anxiety to a society. And so at some point, I mean, I'm not sure why the Chinese weren't able to figure this out, but at some point a human being can only take so much psychological stress. You know, at a certain point, if you say your, your wealth is evaporating, you know, 70%, you know, most of the, the country is invested in real estate. The real estate market is going straight down the tubes. You know, we're looking at here, uh, new built house prices year over year in China have been negative for five months straight. I believe this is a, a month over month, five months straight. Housing prices have been accelerating to the downside. They've been negative, been falling and, and, and the, the fall has been continuing to accelerate. So you're losing your investments. Your currency is depreciating significantly relative to the U S dollar. We have the Chinese yuan up here. It's, it's down at, oh, we have to go the other way around here where it's at $7 and 16 cents, where back nearly a year ago it was $6. So it's depreciated by, you know, 12, almost 13% in the last year. So all of these elements compound on a society. And I think we're seeing the, the release valve of a lot of this anger. And again, the, and you've seen the videos, you've seen the pictures, but you have to constantly take tests. All of this accumulates. But we have housing prices falling. We've got consumer credit in China, you know, availability of individuals being able to purchase things. That's flatlined. Typically, it would grow by a relatively decent margin year over year between 2016 and 2020. It was very strong. Something happened in 2021, early 2022, where it just flatlined. Now consumers aren't buying as much. Consumer credit isn't expanding anymore. It's expanding very slightly, but it's essentially flat over the past year. We've got one year 
medium-term lending facility is falling because foreign investors are getting more skeptical. Money is pouring out of China. Investment income is pouring out of China. And the Chinese are having to cover a lot of this in the depreciating value of their currency. They're losing their foreign FX reserves. They're having to liquidate their treasury positions so they can finance operations in China. A lot of this is going on. We have China retail sales year over year is negative. More indication that the Chinese economy is weakening, continuing to weaken. You know, it was decelerating all the way since Xi Jinping came into power. And then it got extremely volatile in 2020. And it is continuing its negative trend. It's now even lower than where it was on the previous trend line. We've got China's lending economic index, or sorry, leading economic index. This has fallen to the, to the worst level it's been, well, at least as far as this data goes. Uh, it goes all the way back to 1991, and this is the lowest it's ever been on this report. This is from Trading Economics, China Leading Economic Index. Extremely weak. We've got China outstanding yuan loan growth is extraordinarily weak. It's at the lowest point since 2002. So loan growth is decelerating rapidly. It means investment in China is decelerating. We've got China GDP annual growth rate is barely under five. Or over the past you know, two, three decades, it's been well above five and in excess of 10 for most times, you know, during time periods in 1992 to 1996, 1997, it was above 10%. And then back after 2004 to 2010, it was over 10%. And then it fell when Xi Jinping came into power, slowly decelerated into 2020, fell significantly, rose greatly, and then returned back to where it was, down to zero, essentially. The latest number is little under five. But China's economy, GDP annual growth rate, is slowing, and it's poor. China loan prime rate is falling. This gives you more indication. This is something that Jeff Snyder just covered in one of his recent podcasts. The RRR, the reserve uh, ratio requirement for Chinese banks continues to fall because the Chinese government needs to do something to allow banks to continue to operate because their currency continues to fall. Money continues to pour out. And the Chinese government needs that needs Chinese banks, domestic Chinese banks, to continue operating. So they're dropping the reserve requirement ratio. That's not something that indicates a healthy economy, especially when you have all this other data that continues to deteriorate and you're seeing the prime rate continue to fall. That means that something is happening and the Chinese government is trying to preempt or trying to get ahead by cutting rates. That should also be a hint to uh, American and Western investors. And again, we have here, the, the, the cash reserve ratio of big banks is continuously falling. It's been going essentially down since 2015. It hasn't gone up at once. It's now down to around 10 from about 20 back in 2015. So it's almost cut in half over the last about uh, 10 years, roughly. And we have foreign exchange reserves in China. Foreign exchange reserves have been flat since around 2017, 2016. Again, the Xi Jinping era, common prosperity changing and rejiggering the Chinese economy. It was growing just astronomically between 2000 and 2013, 14. We grew from essentially, you know, zero to what is this? Uh, let me make sure I got my numbers correct here. About 3 million. This is in, in oh, sorry, this is a trillion from about maybe a couple hundred billion to, to almost near 4 trillion in foreign reserves at the 
end of 2014, middle of 2014, and that's fallen down to $3 trillion and it has not grown and it continues to weaken. So foreign exchange reserves are continuing to weaken in China along with everything else that we're seeing. We have China composite PMIs, the weakest that we've seen them since really there's a little bit of volatility in 2022 and 2020. But if we look back before 2020, you go all the way back on, on the longest term here chart that we can see back to 2014, and it's the weakest it's been. So it continues, China's economy continues to weaken. And one of the last things I have up here is the China exports year over year are falling and they're negative. So all of these things, and this is obviously the, the China exports, by the way, this is a nominal US dollar value, right? So it says here that China exports unexpectedly were down by 0.3% year over year to uh 983.37 billion US dollar notional value in October of 2022, missing the market consensus of a 4.3% growth rate. Right. And so it was 5.7% increase a month earlier, and now it's down by 0.3%. So this is it's telling you that the Chinese economy is contracting significantly. And at the same time, you have the Chinese government intentionally shifting around the focus of the economic environment in China. So when we're discussing the protests, yes, the lockdown policies, all of these are a part of it. And maybe we can even say the lockdown policies are more economic policy than they are prevention policy and, and public health policy, where if you want to, you know, de-invest from real estate, if you want the Chinese people to get out of real estate, you know, this might be a method and a tactic by the government to essentially have a show of force, it's raw political strength, being able to lock down your population for three years on and off at whim. They haven't done anything. They can't do anything against you. You've got your military, your police, everything else. It's a show of political force. And it says, you know, we're changing around the economy and you better just sit back and take it because if we want to, we can lock you down, your family, your friends, your entire city if we want to. And there's nothing you can do about it. So it, it, there, there is that element to it where while they're rejiggering the economy, while economic environment is continuing to deteriorate, they're running out of money. Foreign investors are reassessing the risk environment in China and saying, ah, I don't know. This doesn't seem like the old China of 2000, you know, six, seven and 11. This seems to be a completely different China that does not seem to be the most hospitable investment environment for my money, my capital, and my investors. So all of these, all of this data, all of these elements and, and sources of information accumulate to one central theory and thesis is that what we can glean from a lot of this data is China is going to look like a radically different country over the next 10 years. And it may be that the Chinese leadership the political leaders, they, they may have gotten too far ahead of themselves. That's just my thoughts. I may, I may be wrong. They may know exactly what they're doing. They may have anticipated the protests I mean, they may have, you know, been wanting this sort of thing so they can come in, quash it, and then, you know, reinstitute some sort of post Tiananmen Square social fear of, of the government or societal fear of the government. So that's always a possibility, of course. We never really know what's going on, but it seems like what ha is happening in China. And again, this, this is not just China, right? If China's economy continues to, you know, 
contract at this pace and change around its operating conditions at, at this rate, what does that mean for the rest of the global economy? The entire planet is still heavily reliant on the Chinese economy. And if the Chinese are just saying, well, we're changing around our entire economic order. Our people are extremely angry with us. So now we're going to have to quash and deal with social uprising, potentially some type of, uh, you know, revolution, whoever else, whatever else. And again, we have to consider the idea if there is a revolution in China, China could blame whoever. They could say, well, the U.S. is instigating this. And then it gives them pretext for some sort of further aggression, maybe something like taking Taiwan. So all of these elements are on the table. And the point I'm trying to get across here is that these events, like the protests in China, are not one single anomalous event. There's a culmination and there's a layering of events that occurs, that erupts. And this social volatility and this, this outbreak of social angst and anger. So we have to be able to go back and try to analyze and see exactly what is going on. What's the underlying premise pretext for a lot of what's happening on the surface. And at least from what I can tell, there's been such economic degradation over the past, you can call it decade in China that the Chinese people are getting squeezed to the point where they have no other option. And there's, there's a quote, I can't remember who, who said it, but it goes something along the lines of when an individual's income, when half of an individual's income is spent on food alone, that's the best indicator for a revolution. Now, I don't know exactly how much the Chinese individuals themselves are spending on food, but given the conditions, the economic conditions, given the social conditions, the political environment, it doesn't seem to be too far off. Now that's where we'll end today. This is a bit longer than I wanted to, but I wanted to cover a little bit at least of what's happening in China. So maybe we can continue to look further into the data, try to understand more of what's happening so we can make more informed, better informed decisions when it comes to our own lives, our own investments and how we view the world around us. Thanks again for being here. We will see you all on the next one.